Hi everyone, it's Beth. Today you'll meet Emily. At the young age of 24 years old, she's already an orphan. She lost her dad in 2018 and her mom just one year ago in October of 2020. Emily shares how she never had a close relationship with her mom, who was disabled and suffered from addiction and mental health issues. It's a story you won't want to miss. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. And now, Emily's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have with me Emily. Um, Emily and I have met online, and uh, I'm not going to have a problem remembering your name at all because I have a daughter named Emily, who's just a year younger than you, so... Um, but Emily reached, I think, you know, on one of my times when I asked if people would be interested in sharing their stories, um, Emily reached out to me. And so she's in the midst of doing this, this work professionally and personally. So I don't want to give away her details. I'll let her introduce herself um, and then tell us a little bit about her story of her mom. And then we're going to have some, some um, teachable moments here too, since Emily is in getting into the professional work in this area. So she has some things she wants to share that I think will be um, useful to the audience. So thanks so much for being here, Emily. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Beth. Um, hello, grief friends. As Beth said, my name is Emily. I am 24 years old and I call myself what we refer to in the grief community as an adult orphan. I lost my father when I was 21 back in 2018 and I recently lost my mom in October 2020, I actually just hit the one-year mark about two days ago. We're currently recording on October 3rd, so I'm actually going to do this a little bit differently than maybe some previous episodes and kind of go all the way back to when my parents first met and take you through kind of everything that happened up until where we are sitting right now currently. So basically, my mother and father were both disabled. My father had cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair, and my mother had a neurological condition called dystonia that kind of affected her muscles and her coordination. And she actually, you know, back in the 70s, they didn't know much about this condition at the time, and she ended up having a few brain surgeries. And she's probably like four or five at this point, had a brain surgery and went completely awry, and she ended up losing her speech. So my mother was actually nonverbal for most of her life. So they actually met in a disability support group for teenagers in high school, dated, dated through college. My father proposed, they got married, and then they had me in 1997. And my father was an aspiring writer. He, you know, kind of wanted to enter the disability advocacy realm, and he ended up getting a job. We were living in California at the time, I was born in California, and he got a really great job working for a wheelchair manufacturing company in Pennsylvania. So he moved us across country when I was around the age of three, and that is when from stories, because obviously I was three at the time, that things started to go a little south for my family. Um, things were good at first. And then my mother's mental health really started taking a turn for the worse. Um, maybe when I was around like eight, nine, 10, probably up until like 12 or 13 was when it was severely bad. She was diagnosed with bipolar, right? Obviously it's so like depression, anxiety. Um, now that I'm kind of in the field myself, I would actually, you're not supposed to do this, but I feel like I would diagnose her more with borderline personality disorder. But anyway, so 
So basically a lot of traumatic things happened in my childhood that my mom did. She had a lot of psychotic episodes, you know, in and out of hospital, you know, hospitals and psych wards and going out of therapy. She was heavily addicted to prescription medication, just couldn't, couldn't really, you know, get a break there. And so, you know, after a lot of unsafe things happened in our household with my mom, um, when I was about 12, my father decided that he had to pull us out of that environment for our safety, you know, especially his own daughters. And so my mom left and they got divorced. And, you know, looking back, I can just not imagine how hard that must have been for my father, you know, to be suddenly sitting there as a single dad with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair to this like 13 year old, you know, daughter what do you do? And so I really just want to credit him for the resiliency that he had. Both of them came from very traumatic families and backgrounds, both sides riddled with addiction. You know, my father's dad was like in prison, things like that, both sides of the family. And my mother, unfortunately, just didn't, couldn't really get out of that intergenerational trauma. And my father, unfortunately, he did for us, which was great. Um, I definitely kind of kudos him, um, I don't think I would have turned out the way I did if it wasn't for my father. So, but so they got divorced. Um, and that's when that relationship with my mother, I think, really just kind of started um, dissipating a little bit. I carried a lot of anger and resentment towards her for a lot of things she did to us in my childhood. And I think also my dad did too. And I kind of witnessed that. And, you know, I was attached to my father at the hip. I mean, it was just us against the world from the time I was 13 until I left for college out of state at 18. So I think we both had a little bit of anger and resentment there. He still took care of her though, which was, you know, very noble thing to do. But um, so they got divorced. Um, you know, I, I was fine in high school, obviously. Like I would see her from time to time. She never got better. Things would just get worse. She kind of just like lived on her own, in her own world. Not, not many friends or anything like that. Um, I left for college out of state in 2015, and my father that year actually ended up getting remarried to a wonderful woman named Holly, who also has a stepdaughter, so I got a sister, which was nice because I was an only child growing up. Um, they got married, and, you know, I went off to college, and ever since my mother, you know, got severely sick is kind of what I like to say now because, you know, as addiction and mental health, it's, you know, in clinical terms, it's, it's a sickness. Obviously, I'll talk about this, but I still kind of struggle with that because, you know, it's when it happens to you, it's kind of difficult to rationalize it at times. But um, we, we had a really terrible relationship up until she passed, but we'll go back for a second because in 2017, my father was remarried. They're both still living in Pennsylvania. And my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. And so he went through a couple of rounds of chemo um, in, I'm trying to think, I think it's February 2018. He actually ended up having an esophagectomy. So they went in and took out half of his esophagus, pulled it on up to his stomach. Um, that surgery kind of went wrong and they ended up having to do a trach on him for a few weeks. He like stopped breathing in the middle of surgery. Um, very, very difficult recovery for him, especially being in a hospital. Uh, medical professionals don't always not to know what to do with people with disabilities. And so that, that was a tough few weeks for my family there. Um, and then we found out that a couple months later that the cancer spread and they found some spots on like his liver and his kidneys. 
And, you know, we were all kind of hopeful, like, oh, maybe they were going to try to do biopsies and CAT scans and just never got around to it. He started having like severe pain in his back and eventually became bedridden. And around like Halloween time in 2018, he entered in-home hospice. So I, I was also in my last semester of undergrad graduating with my bachelor's in psychology. And so I went home for a few weeks, you know, with my stepmom and my stepsister and my dad was in hospice and he eventually passed on November 25th, 2018. Um, I was 21 at the time and he actually graduated 23 days before I graduated with my bachelor's. And so I will never forget sitting there at the ceremony. My father had just passed 23 days before. I'm like sitting in the front row. I'm like one of the first ones to go in the entire ceremony. I'm just sitting there trying not to just start sobbing. I mean, it's a blur looking back. My graduation was not that enjoyable in the grand scheme of things because I'm like knee deep in the middle of my, the beginning of my grief journey at that point. Um, and it's something we talked about for a really, really long time together. My father was the first one in his family to ever go to college. And, and including my mom's side. And so that was something that, you know, was just a moment I really wanted to share with him. And when he was literally on his deathbed in hospice, I told him, I don't want to walk without you. I'm not going to do it. And he was like, nope, I'm making you do it, whether I'm there or not. And so that was, that was a very difficult season for me, you know, kind of being thrusted into this, this transition of, oh, you know, I'm graduating. Now's my time to be like a mini adult. And I don't have my father with me. And he was my everything. You're he loved me unconditionally and that was that was really difficult and so going back to my mom then right so I'm kind of left with my mother at this point and my stepmom thankfully but so me and my mother had this terrible rocky relationship and it just didn't get any better um you know she was still severely sick still addicted still struggling with her mental health and, you know, there were times when she would be you'd straight up say to me, like, I wish it was me and not your father, you know, all these, these terrible things to me. And obviously, it's not what I want to hear. And I'm like, no, don't say that to me. <laughs> um, she, she, she was a very troubled person, I will say. And so it was a very, very complicated relationship. We didn't talk much. Um, even when she would try, it was just she'd want to, like, pick fights or argue. And it was, it was all very self-centered and very selfish a lot of the time. And so I just, I just tried to kind of go about, go about my life. You know, I was trying to figure out my grief and that's what actually led me to hopping into this profession. I, ever since high school, I wanted to be a therapist. And then in college, I actually ended up working at a agency outside of DC where I am now that um, helps nonverbal children with autism doing like using various AAC devices. And so I've been doing that for like five years now. And I was like, oh, I love doing this. You know, maybe I can like work the system and like get a, get a master's in special education and see if I can like change the public school system. It didn't happen. Um, I, my last semester, I was actually on track to, to do that. I was entering an accelerated master's in special education. And then my father passed and I said, screw that. And I ended up enrolling in a master's of clinical social work program to become a therapist. And that's what I'm doing now. I am in my last year. Um, I'm currently a therapy intern, or clinical intern, as we call it, at an agency here in DC that actually provides grief and trauma therapy to the community. So I'm currently doing that, seeing some clients and doing some school-based work. And that's been phenomenal. I love every single ounce of it. But so, you know, I was, I, I was doing that. 
and kind of just trying to live my life here and grieve. And then about two, two and a half. No, I'm sorry. I'm trying to think. Time is irrelevant with COVID, friends. <laughs> um, I have been dreading, you know, a call that my mother was like found overdosed or that she died by suicide or, you know, I've been dreading this like this call that she was found, you know, deceased for, for years and years and years. And I think the thing is when you have such a complicated relationship with someone, you know, especially like with me and my mother, you know, who as a kid, I would come home after school and she'd be knocked down on the couch for hours on end and never went on family vacations with us. And, you know, did a lot of these, these traumatic things that I won't talk about on this podcast, but, you know, that, that, that chance of overdose or with how depressed she was and, you know, the times that she did try to take her own life and things like that becomes more of a reality as you live your life. And at the end of the day, just, just because we didn't have that relationship doesn't mean I didn't care at all. You know, there were still times where like, I was listed as her emergency contacts. Like I would get, you know, a, a medical reminder that she had a doctor's appointment and I'd shoot her a text and be like, Hey, you have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. Just thought I'd let you know since they called me, you know, I, I still did that, did that stuff. Or when she had a medical scare in 2016, I drove down to Pennsylvania. She was in the hospital for a while. I, I took care of her. Like at the end of the day, she was my mother and I didn't agree with her lifestyle choices. I didn't agree with how she treated me for a very long time, but that, you know, that empathy was still there in a way. And so, you know, anytime I would get this random unknown number call, my, my stomach would drop for a second because I'd be like, this is it. This is the call. And on October 1st, 2020, I was actually getting ready to run a support group for my job. And I was like five minutes beforehand, I was like logging on a Zoom, getting my things ready. And I looked down at my phone and I had like five missed calls. And I go, oh no. And before I even call the number back, I text my mom and I just go, hey mama, how are you? And so then I'm, you know, I'm like, well, maybe it's not it. Maybe it's something else, right? I just, I knew my gut knew, my instincts kicked in and I knew, and I called the number back and it was her caretaker at the time. And, you know, she's like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, came over because I haven't heard from your mom in a few days and I had to like grab something and I, I found her. And so I'm like, I immediately start sobbing. I'm like sobbing on the phone and she's like, Pat, you know, they're like passing the phone around. The EMT wants to talk to me. The police officer wants to talk to me. And you probably like, can't even understand me. I'm just like my, my world just stopped turning for a second time. The first time when my father passed, right. Cause he literally passed like in front of us. And for just a brief second, again, everything around me froze. And I'm just, you know, in this moment of like huge grief. And so they're like passing the phone around and it's, it's a whole chaotic mess. And so then the next day, me and my partner drive down, you know, we're in Virginia in the DC area. We drive down to Pennsylvania and we, I just, I immediately kind of kick myself in the like, in the gear. And, you know, I'm very much like a, just get stuff done type person when this stuff happens at first. Same thing with my dad. I went into, well, I'll just plan his, you know, memorial and I'll do X, Y, and Z. And then I kind of let myself sit in the grief after the fact. So I went down to Pennsylvania. I started like clearing out her house. I was trying to get like things in order and walking into her house was, was just literally like looking at someone that I didn't even know. I mean, her fridge, my mother never drank I'll tell you that the only time I've ever seen her drink is like a bottle of Kalula, right? That like coffee flavored liquor. That's it. 
never drank. I opened her fridge and it was, I have pictures. It's literally like 30 bottles of alcohol in her fridge. And there's like not a single drop of food. She used to drink like these protein shakes, like never really took care of herself anyway, in terms of like food and eating, but like just nothing but alcohol. And it just, I just looked in this fridge and I was like, this is not my mother. Like, I know that we didn't have a great relationship. I didn't know her like I wanted to, but like, this is not my mother. And there was just other things that happened that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but because of the way she was found, she basically was found on the floor. Um, at first they were like looking at it like, well, you know, is anyone, would anyone want to hurt your mom type thing? And then they were like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, given her medical history and her diagnoses, maybe it was, you know, a suicide. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was just like, uh, and so they were like, what, what funeral, you know, funeral home do you want to take her to and blah, blah, blah. So I did all that. And then I learned that I could have asked, I could request an autopsy. And by the time I did kind of learn that, because remember, I'm like 23 in this moment. I don't, why would I know that? Um, by the time I, you know, thought about that, she was out of the coroner's office. And so they were like, you can like pay $3,000 to get one done, but we're not going to do one for you. And I was like, great. So, you know, there's always like random weird clues, like the alcohol bottles and the prescription medication and her like sad, empty apartments, things that just didn't add up or make sense. Um, but an autopsy was never done. And to this day, I still don't really know what happened to her. Um, they just kind of wrote it off as like, maybe it was a heart attack. And if anyone's familiar with the certificates they love to just kind of list any and like all like medical diagnoses as like cause of death so her you know her death certificate just says like cardiac arrest dystonia like bipolar disorder like as if that's what killed her you know it's fine I have a lot of qualms about that but but so yeah I have no idea what happened to my mother and it's it's something I'm still very much struggling with <laughs> I mean, I, there's that sense of closure there that I will never get in a lot of different ways. Um, but so, yeah, I, we like cleaned out our house and, you know, did all that. And I drove my merry way back and it's been a year. And, you know, I think I had a friend once tell me that the first year is just surviving. You're just kind of on survival mode. And then the second year is when it's, when it's really rough, right? Cause that reality, that new, that your new reality starts to kind of set it and hit you. And I, and, you know, looking back at the past year, it feels like I was almost like a walking zombie in a way. I mean, for a second time I lost a parent and I was suddenly thrusted into this whole new transition of, oh, I'm 23 years old and I'm now parentless. Both my parents passed within a two year span my father was 47 when he passed my mother passed a few days after she turned 50 so I was like both my parents passed by the time they were 50 which is wild to me <laughs> and almost creates a fear in me of like am I gonna make it to 50 you know like both my parents didn't but it's it was a very comp you know complicated relationship and it was interesting because I just carried so much anger and resentment towards her. And I, I didn't try to understand where she was coming from. And in complicated grief, so clinically speaking, there's, there's kind of two different realms for complicated grief. Clinically speaking, we kind of tend to use it as a diagnosis when someone's like severely mourning the loss of someone after a certain amount of time. And that's like, when I mean severely, I mean to the point where they're like ruminating over a loss or severe anxiety involved. They're not, you know, in quotation marks, you know, like functioning 
like going to work, things like that for like an X amount of months. But then there's also kind of that complicated grief that we talk about where you're just navigating a really complicated loss in relationship. And so that comes with a lot of shame, with a lot of guilt. Um, I, to this day, right, it's only been a year, I severely struggle with not feeling validation in my grief because it wasn't this, you know, loving mother-daughter relationship. She didn't tuck me in at night or, you know, see me go to prom or graduate high school or any of those things. And so especially I think when you're kind of, you know, in these like support groups or grief community or, in, you know, even in just in everyday life, like surrounded by your peers, you know, and you hear these people talking about like, oh, my mother's favorite food was this. And we used to, you know, go down to the beach together during holidays. And then when you have that complicated relationship, you sit there and you're like, but I, I don't know what my mom's favorite food was. And I don't, you know, I never really got to know my mother as a person or as a mom. Um, I have a lot of trauma from my childhood with her and I have like barely any memories of my childhood because of it, something I'm currently working on in therapy. Um, and so, you know, I, she passed away and it was this giant question mark of like, what, who was my mother? You know, what was my parents' relationship? Where did I fit in? Where do I fit in now? And so, you know, it's, it's almost like uncomfortable though, being 23 and I'm surrounded by all of my peers, you know, as like, as this young adult, I'm just starting out. I call myself like a mini adult, right? Because I'm so young and all my peers, like I was sitting at a dinner a few weeks ago for one of my friends and like, they started talking through some topic going on, you know, and they all started like talking about like this funny thing, like all their moms did. And I just sat there really uncomfortable because I'm like, I couldn't tell you if my mom did that or not. I don't really know, but it's, it's definitely been a journey. It's that validation part is just so hard when you have complicated loss like that, because there's, there's no validation or there's no, there's no sense of meaning behind it. You know, David Kessler talks about the sixth stage of, sixth, the sixth stage of grieving called making meaning. And I feel like I've done that with my father, right? We have the traditions that we shared together. Me and my stepmother, we always like, you know, we send uh, Chinese lanterns into the sky every death anniversary for my father. You know, I have ways that I, I feel connected to him that I, I kind of find meaning in his loss. I don't think I'd be where I am right, right now in my master's program, specifically wanting to do bereavement work with children and adolescents if it wasn't for my father's passing, you know? And I don't have that with my mother. I, have, I don't really have any ways to, to feel connected to her like that. I, I don't know her favorite food. You know, I don't have these, these great happy memories with her to cherish. And, you know, her one year just passed and I was really struggling with knowing how to kind of honor our relationship and her and me when I don't have any way to feel connected to her or know how to celebrate her. And I ended up just like having a spa day and kind of got a facial massage and I just let myself be. And I think that's, that's one of the hardest things to do when you're in this complicated grief though is allowing yourself the space to just be, because it's, it's not fair. You know, I fully recognize and feel, right, that I got ripped off from having a, a mother. And I dealt for years with this, you know, this other term called ambiguous loss that we talk a lot about in clinical terms. And as a lot of the times referred when you have, you know, maybe like a, a parent or grandparent, like dementia or Alzheimer's, for example, right, where someone could be physically present, but mentally they're not. 
or the opposite where, you know, maybe they're physically, maybe they're like across the country, but you talk every night and they're kind of mentally with you, but you're still, you know, experiencing the sense of loss. So that's what we call ambiguous loss, right? You're kind of, you're experiencing these like two, two things at once. And I spent a lot of, a lot of my life experiencing this ambiguous loss with my mother. I mean, you know, she would, for a while, she was physically there, mentally far, far gone. And, you know, every time we would become unsafe or she would do something or she, you know, had a hospitalization or she like missed a, you know, band recital and things like that, I lost my mother over again. And I kept on losing her over and over and over again. And I think that's where that anger and that resentment kind of built up as a teenager. And so part of, you know, now being able to look back, right? I definitely have this, this newfound sense of empathy in a way, right? And part, you also start to kind of try to rationalize it, especially because when you're a child, you don't know what's going on. I mean, I, I grew up thinking like this was normal. You know, I thought finding mom on the floor was normal for a lot of years. And it wasn't until I hit high school, young adult years that I was like, wait, this isn't good, is it? And, you know, starting to try and kind of unpack that trauma. But so, yeah, you start to kind of try to rationalize their behaviors and what happened to your relationship. So like for me, after my mom passed, I went, okay, she was sexually assaulted as a child, right? She literally lost her speech. She had disabilities. I know she was like severely depressed throughout her childhood and, you know, kind of young adult years because she, she felt like an outsider and she had, you know, this intergenerational trauma too of, you know, her, her parents had mental health issues and trauma and their grandparents. And it, you know, she was kind of carrying this, this intergenerational trauma with her and she, she just couldn't, she couldn't battle it, you know, and that's, she kind of chose, you know, chose to seek out those coping mechanisms and what she did. And part of me, you know, tries to rationalize that and being like, well, you know, she did have all these traumatic things happen to her. And, you know, obviously that's, unfortunately, sometimes we turn to these coping mechanisms and do what we do when we have that happen. But then there's that not so rational part of me, right? Or maybe that that angry inner child, you know, small 10-year-old Emily that's going, but no, I was also your daughter and you were supposed to protect me and, you know, take care of me and, and love me unconditionally. And I think deep down she did. I mean, at the end of the day, I was her daughter and she was my mom, but she also did some really terrible things. And it's, it's okay to be angry about that. I, you know, little Emily deserved better than that. And so you're kind of in this battle of trying to rationalize their behavior while also realizing, no, X, Y, and Z happened. And that's, that's okay too. It's, it's okay to hold space for both. So I'm definitely kind of trying to figure out that balance for both of those right now. I mean, first of all, let's just acknowledge the fact that, that, Grief, the, lo- the loss in itself that you've experienced at your age is huge. And I, I listened to something the other day where Oprah talks about big T and little T, you know, big trauma versus little trauma. Well, you had, you know, significant loss and a lot of big T trauma that you also went through. And then now you're using this as your impetus, I, I think, to, you know, go into the, the field that you're going into. Have you ever like thought how you would counsel you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because when you're kind of in school for this, they tell you like, 
you know, you're going to sit down and you're going to have your like DSM-5 class and you're going to be like start applying all of these like methods and diagnoses to you and you're not supposed to do that, but you do. You're a student. That's it's, it's a normal human thing to do. Right. Um, you know, and part of it is that I look back on my life and I like wish my, my father like enrolled us in therapy when I was like 14. That would have been really, really helpful. You know, and part of that though for me is, is identifying, especially as an adult, and after idolizing and almost kind of being codependent um, on my father for many years, that even parents have downfalls and no one's perfect. And that was, you know, that was kind of one of them. And I, you know, also though, my father was definitely just trying to cope himself and trying to keep us afloat. And, but yeah, I mean, it's hard too, because I've currently been kind of bouncing around between therapists anyway. It's therapy is definitely, you know, kind of, you know, they refer to it as like speed dating, find a good therapist. And I have yet to find one. Okay. <laughs> so it's been a little difficult. I've had some terrible experiences with some therapists. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think, you know, if I were to like sit down and, you know, have some talk therapy with myself, I think part of it is working through the fact that, you know, little Emily was kind of stunted for a while. I mean, you know, with everything that happened with my mother, it was, it's, it was traumatic. And also we tend to forget that grief and loss can be really traumatic too. Absolutely. And yeah. people, people don't like to throw that term around for their grief and their, you know, their, their loss of loved ones. And it's, I know trauma is like a big, scary word for a lot of people, but the reality is that we all have trauma in some yes. way. I mean, we're living this, these complex lives where all of these things happen. Of course, you're going to have some kind of trauma and trauma doesn't have to be that, you know, your loved one died by suicide or homicide, which is, you know, what we refer to in the clinicians is like traumatic loss which I have some qualms about because at the end of the day, like, even if you were like nine and you like lost your, your teddy bear or something, I don't know, like 10 years down the road, that could have actually been an offset trigger for something like that could have been trauma. You know, we kind of tend to put, put trauma and grief in this like little box and it should not be in this little box. And it's in this huge box. There's all these variations for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so part of it is, yeah, I think being able to sit down with myself, right, if I was counseling myself and work through the fact that, you know what, it's, it's okay to acknowledge that I have trauma from my childhood and my teenage years. And now I have some lovely added trauma of, you know, not having any closure about my mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, <clears throat> you mentioned about how that you don't have a lot of memories from childhood. And this has become a theme that I've heard from several of the women that I've interviewed. And, and, and I don't think it's widely known that when you do have either trauma or loss, I mean, like I, I, I watched my mom die at 13 years old and that's traumatic. I'm sorry. A 13 year old is not supposed to, you know, sit there and wondering if she's going to stop breathing today or tomorrow or, yeah. um, and I, there's things like my, my husband remembers like everything. And I'm always like, I don't, my third grade teacher, I don't know who that was. I don't remember her name. Um, and so I've talked to people about that. That's, and I don't know, you know, maybe it's your self-defense mechanism because when you're, you know, for when you're at that age, that it's better for you not to be able to remember everything that you went through kind of sort of, but then unfortunately it, it wipes out a lot of your you know, memories like my third grade teacher. I don't remember her either. 
Um, but is that something that they, that you have learned? Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's, that's, it's, it's a trauma response and it's a coping mechanism. And that's why so many people, if you, you know, if you talk to someone who was like a domestic violence, you know, survivor or, you know, sexual abuse survivor and, you know, things like that, oftentimes they would, they will tell you like, yeah, I just have this like blackout memory from like this time frame to this time frame, And it's literally our body's way of protecting ourselves we carry the trauma in our bodies and brains are so much more complex. And that's the thing is people are like, oh, psychology, we know all kinds of things about the brain. But in reality, we have like light years to go to fully understand the capabilities of our brains and our bodies. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, whether you realize it or not, like your brain in survival mode. And that's, that's a huge coping mechanism that so many people don't realize. One of the other things that I've seen a lot of, a lot of people do, like they go back and so your loss is recent and you're very young. Um, So like that, they say they lost a mom when they were 13 or something, but then they go back when they're like 40 and they think about the circumstances and the things that they did and all the, I could have, should have, would have kind of things with your 40 year old brain. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you, you judge your 13 year old oh, self yeah. with your 14 year old brain, which is not fair because you knew what you knew I mean, when you I, were 13. And I, right? I mean, I lost my parents two and, you know, a year ago. And I, I do that every day, <laughs> especially with, you know, with my father at first, like that's all I did. I was like, I should have done this differently. I could have done this. And that's, that's a huge part of, I think loss though, is, you know, kind of going back and reliving those moments and having that regret. But it is, it's realizing that, you did what you could do in the moment with the resources that you had. Yes. You are in a totally different place now than even two days ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't have the knowledge and the resources and the information that you do even from an hour ago. Yeah. Is there any special therapy, specific therapy that, you know, is, is, um, for that kind of situation? And it is, it's I, the, some of the women I've talked to carry around an extreme amount of regret guilt and shame of all the coulda, shoulda, woulda's that I should have done during this traumatic. And, and normally this, you know, it's a, it's a traumatic event. Is there any sort of therapy that's specific for that? Does there have a name? I mean, I think, I think, no, I think when you experience grief and loss and when you, when you've had traumatic events happen to you though, it's, it's really important to seek out a therapist that is trauma informed. Right. Meaning that they understand the complexity of trauma and how it affects, you know, all aspects of your life and kind of, you know, affects how you function and how you view the world. And I think that's what a lot, you know, a lot of people don't seek out. And, you know, like there's, there's, there's literally institutions out there and agencies and organizations that are specifically for trauma. Like the one I'm working at right now, specifically for grief and trauma. I just had a month's long training like nine to five every day specifically on you know how to work with patients with trauma and I think that's what a lot of the community needs and we just you know kind of haven't gotten there yet as a society oh especially after I mean everybody's experienced the past 18 months of trauma right exactly yeah yeah I mean yeah that's the thing we're we are currently experiencing a collective trauma but it's also so interesting because it's this, you know, even like grief, right? It's this universal collective thing, but it's also so deeply personal and unique, even like, you know, as unique as like a thumbprint. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing. Like you mentioned, David Kessler. Um, one of the things that I've learned through the, the research and stuff I've done this past year is that like one of the things we do is we treat grief as like a problem to be fixed. It's not a problem that's going to be fixed. First of all, they're not coming back. Second of all, it's not, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? It's, it's like a reality that has to be addressed, but as a society, we treat grief as a problem to be fixed, or we give these six stages and you, know, you feel like you say, well, as long as I go from point A, B, C, D, E, F, then I'm done. You know, there's a movie, you know, that you get, get over your grief. There's no getting over it either. Like my thing is, is learning to carry it and grow with it because it's not going anywhere. So I have a lot of comments about what you just said, Beth. Okay. <laughs> so <Great. laughs> to start, yes. I mean, you know, if you greet or if you're kind of group, you know, mental health and grief and loss together, we as a society treat mental health in this medical model, right? Where it's, you go to the doctor and they diagnose you and then they, they treat you where they try to fix you. And it's very money hungry. And it's this, you know, really broken system in this medical model. And that's, we need to be moving away from that. I mean, mental health is this completely separate thing from, I mean, it obviously intertwines with physical health, but in terms of like, you know, treating it, it's, it's, it's different. I mean, it's even with physical health too, though, right? We need to be moving away from this medical model and more into this, I almost want to say like holistic way Yes. where, where it's, it's, it's a lifelong thing and you're, and you know, you're, you're learning and you're growing and you're going to go through difficulties. And it's not just, it's not just pop a bandaid on it and keep on and keep on moving. Right. And so it's funny that you mentioned like the, you know, like the five stages of grief, because so many people, I don't even know how it ended up being twisted like that, but Elizabeth Kubler-Ross originally created the five stages of grief. And it wasn't for those that were left behind. It was for, she was doing a study and researching on those with like cancer who were going to pass. End of life people, end of life patients. Mm-hmm. And so many people don't realize that. And I have no idea how it got misconstrued, but like, that's like this huge thing now in society. And I'm like, no, that's not what it was for mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's, you cannot, there's no, you know, possible way to put like stages that you have to follow on, on grief and loss. I mean, it's, it's, it's not linear literally every, sometimes every hour is different. Like my mom's, my mom's one year was on Friday and like, I woke up feeling really angry and the next hour I was feeling quite all right. Like it's, you know, there's just no, you can't label it. So when you go, when you look at all these things and the stages of grief, and then it's not a problem to fix. And we have the person, personal relationship that was lost as well as the loss itself. Everything that I keep coming back to is that you, you just have to work on you. Like you have to, you have to work on your own personal development and figuring out what works for you. And, and that's a lifelong progress. I mean, I'm, I'm twice your age, I'm 51 years old, and I'm still figuring out, you know, and it, and it changes with different seasons of life. But in addition to not providing a really great environment to support people in their grief process, I also feel like when you were talking about the whole, like the mental health versus the physical health and everything that we've done a really horrible job of, of giving people the tools to be like mindful and to Uh, process your emotions and to know that your thoughts aren't always real just because you think something doesn't mean it's true 
and it and all this stuff happens like as kids and then like you said you used your rational thoughts to try to you know think about your relationship with your mom and forgive her for things but then in the back of your head you're like but that's not right she's supposed to love me unconditionally and I'm her daughter and she's supposed to be the one taking care of me not me taking care of her we aren't given a lot of those tools either when we need them, which should be like when we were growing up. So you were talking about, you know, kind of like a holistic point of view. I've seen some things where like they're teaching kids like breathing techniques and the tapping techniques and how to be able to recognize different emotions in your bodies. And I just think we are at this, at this height of, I'm hoping some awareness towards something that's on a more positive level personally, because in the end of the day, I'm in charge of me and you're in charge of you. And you're really the only person who can be the master of your own process through this, through this journey. And, you know, you're giving me this platform to like, go for it, Beth. It's kind of dangerous. Um, (laughs) Let's do it. I have have a lot of feelings because also, yeah, it's also realizing that like, we, you know, we say we want to offer this space for people to be like mindful and, uh, you know, work on themselves and X, Y, Z, but we're also like working people five and six days a week, 40 plus hours a week. And like, we barely give any maternity leave and let alone like bereavement leave that's non-existent, you know, like it's, it's also these, these, these higher institutions and kind of how we're built as a society and it's all of it's broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, right. We, we can, talk and talk but we're not doing the walk you know mm-hmm. like in, until we really look at these structures and say what needs to change and start changing them not not much is going to happen in that realm unfortunately right because my thing is like so like my sister um battled cancer for almost 10 years and towards the end of her journey she met a woman in treatment who gave her this book called it's not anti-cancer diet but it was called anti-cancer and it talks about all the things that we do with lifestyle stress you know, um, being overweight, processed foods, nitrates, this, you know, all these things that can contribute to sugar, like cancer feeds off sugar, all these things that we do um, that help, you know, give cancer a good place to grow versus not. Everything is, is reactive versus being proactive. Like instead of, oh, if we just give medications for the symptoms and how to, oh, we'll just, you know, placebo it and make you feel like you we're feel not, better, but we're, we're not treating it. it. Yeah. Right. We're popping a bandaid on it and saying, oh, you're feeling really depressed this week. Here's some medication. Like you're fine. Keep going. Yeah. It's, it's a bandaid. It's, you know, something in the moment to help you function better, but long-term you're still shit out of luck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. But I really feel like, like that you're, so I have a daughter that's about your age and then, and then two other ones too. Like, I really feel like your generation is the one that is starting to have these hard conversations. Like we're starting to name mental illness and that it's a disease, just like heart disease, just like, you know, if you, if you have a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist. If you have, if your brain has a problem, then you go to a therapist or you get a brain scan or, you know, whatever it is. But I really feel like they, that I'm praying that there's an opening that's happening that is going to lead to some significant changes because I don't know if we'll spontaneously combust, but I feel like some things like the tension and the wheels are starting to grind together that 
it's just not going to be, it's not going to be a good situation. Yeah. I mean, something's got to give at some point we've been, and that's the thing is we have like hundreds and hundreds of years of this and it, it's, it's very slowly evolving, but it is. And yeah, I think that's part of why I specifically want to do the work I want to do because I want to do grief and trauma, you know, therapy, but I specifically want to do it with like children and adolescents and young adults. Mm, that's so awesome. Because, but part of it is that a lot of that does start developmentally, like when you're a baby, yeah. I mean, you know, you learn all about in school, like attachment styles and, you know, just how all of, you know, parenting and kind of your experiences as like a toddler kind of shape who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And if we were just, if we could just, you know, actually be able to, to give parents and literally anyone on the planet, right. Like these, these tools to, to work on themselves and, you know, to realize, oh, you know, I, I can break this, you know, intergenerational trauma or, oh, I don't have to feel like shit every day. Mm-hmm. Crazy mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. I mean, um, a, a huge part of, you know, mental health and like, even just like going to dinner with a friend, right. Is meeting someone where they are at in that yeah. present moment. Yeah. That's a huge part of therapy too, especially being a clinician is, you know, having a client walk into my door and going, I'm here to meet you where you are at. Like I, my, my experiences, my life, my feelings are out the window in that therapy room. Mm. Even, Mm -hmm. even like if I'm going to dinner with like my best friend, right? Like, oh, you want to tell me about grad school right now and how stressed you are? The floor is yours. I am actively listening. My stuff is to the side for a brief moment, right? Like Mm. showing up for people, just being Mm -hmm. present is like more than enough half the time. Well, what a gift you have for that to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially at your age. I would love to have you back sometime because I do want this uh, podcast to also be like an educational type of thing in addition to people sharing their stories. Um, And so if I can keep you in my back pocket as a resource, perhaps, you know, when things come up to talk about. Absolutely. I love talking about this. Clearly, you can see me on video getting kind of amped up. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Try to wrap up the podcast with a, a tip or something to share. Uh, or something, a last final thought that you want to share with the listeners today? Yeah, I think I actually kind of already, we already talked about my tip. Grief is traumatic and, you know, those, those regrets, just, it's so easy. And I mean, I still do this, you know, now, I mean, I'm super kind of raw and in my grief in the moment, but, you know, sitting there and being like, well, I should have done this wrong. And, oh, maybe if I just repaired the relationship with my mom, it could have been better and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, realizing that, I'm also a human being and I'm also extremely young, right? I'm only 24 now and I've been through a lot <laughs> in my in my small amount of 24 years already. And part of, you know, sitting in your grief is just giving yourself that grace and being gentle to yourself. And I struggle with that a lot of the time, right? I mean, we live in this society that's, that's go, go, go all the time. And, you know, you have to take care of your kids and get to work and make dinner and, you know, just finding time to sit in your grief. And it, it's okay to feel it. It's okay to sit in your shower for 20 minutes and cry if you have to every now and then, you know, mm-hmm. we, we can be really bad sometimes at kind of welcoming and sitting with that grief because it's uncomfortable. And it's super freaking uncomfortable. I hate mm-hmm. doing it too a lot of the time, right? Yeah, but, right. but it's it's important that we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. We, sh- we should be getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm, I like that. Absolutely. That's so true. Hmm. And you've also started a little social media thing. Do you want to tell people about that? And where yeah, they can find you? I, when my father passed, 
um, I started a grief Instagram, which was actually ended up being a really welcoming community. I love it a lot. Um, so you can find me over on Instagram at grief by Emily. And I basically just talk everything about grief and trauma. And it's really fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emily, for being here today. I really appreciate you sharing and um, talking about, you know, complicated grief is hard. And I think there's a lot of daughters that also have, you know, like moms who have never been a part of their life or, you know, whatever the circumstances are that make it not the, you know, Disney fairy tale daughter mom relationship, which I don't think there's a whole lot of those out there anyways, but just that nobody else knows what I've been through or has this kind of relationship. I just think that you've shined a light on this for a lot of people that I know are going to listen and be grateful that you shared your story. So thank you so much. Thank you, Beth. And I just want to say thank you for kind of creating the space and, and, you know, inviting people to be able to sit in their grief and share their stories because we don't do that a whole lot in this society. I mean, we, we don't get to, you know, name our loss and our loved one and sit down and talk about it enough. So thank you. Yes, you're quite welcome. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.